Hello and welcome to Profiles. I'm Murray McGibbon. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars and musicians and get to know the person behind the persona. Tonight we have the pleasure of speaking to a theatre director, producer, actor and all-round theatre renaissance man from, no, not the West End of London, but from our very own Bloomington, Indiana, via Edmonton, Toronto, New York, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia and regional theatres across the United States. He is Randy White, the artistic director of the Cardinal Stage Company, headquartered here in Bloomington. Randy, welcome to Profiles. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. Well, let's start at the beginning. What are some of your earliest theatrical memories and experiences? I I grew up in a small town in Canada, and we didn't have uh, a great deal of theater, but we did have one thing that came through, which was several times a year there was a traveling theater company called Theater New Brunswick, which is the name of the, the province that I grew up in, New Brunswick. And I have a a very distinct memory of the light bulb going off over my head at about eight or nine years old, uh, a a production of Godspell coming through. And it was a production of Godspell done with acrobats. And I remember in one of the big energetic numbers, this, this fellow did a flip, backwards flip over my head. I remember this very clearly. And I remember going, that's what I want to do. (laughs) Uh, And that was like my first memory of theater was, was seeing that. And then I was fortunate. I auditioned at about 14 years old for a production that that company was doing of Life with Father. And I uh, got cast as one of the sons and ended up going out of school for months at a time and, and being tutored and traveling across the you know across the, the way with, with a traveling group of, of actors and, and uh, then got cast again and did a second one there. And so I, I, theater was something that I did very young in, in high school. I was doing it all the time and sort of split that between a, a hockey life. I was also a, a, a jock in high school. So I did theater and, and my theater people made fun of me for doing hockey in my hockey. Friends made fun of me for being a, a theater dweeb. Um, so that was, that was my, my background as a, as, a, as a youngster. Did you come from a theatrical family? Not at all. My family was uh, and is extraordinarily blue-collar. I have about 50 first cousins, a Catholic, Irish Catholic, Canadian background. And my sister and I were the, the first two to go to college. And uh, there's been a couple of others you know, behind us, but, but it's very working class. And uh, the arts are, are, were not something that were part of their world. I, it's just something that I, I fell into. I had very good fortune to have a couple of teachers that really encouraged me. And one particular high school teacher is I think a lot of people, if you have one teacher who takes you under their wing, and uh, she was uh, just a wonderful person and uh, cast me and then started me directing as well. Do you have a life outside of the theater? Yes, I do. I, actually, I've been, uh, my, my wife and I have been together for 19 years now. And uh, we have two children, One's three and a half and one's six months. So we waited a long time. Uh, and she's actually in the English department. She's a, a professor of Shakespeare English department. And um, I went to college and had lots of college friends that I keep in touch with. And so, yeah, so, but with Cardinal here in Bloomington, it, it certainly is very time consuming. There's no question running, starting a theater company and running a theater company is your life is, is that. And you squeeze everything else in around it. I'm sure very busy. You received your bachelor's degree from Mount Allison University in Canada. Are there any substantial differences to the training in Canada that you'd find in, in an American university? I don't think so. I mean, the the degree that I received was a Bachelor of Arts. And what I loved about the degree that was that it wasn't a conservatory program by any stretch. It was uh, a chance to get your hands in every every pot. And so when I was in school, I was a, a typical year would have me lighting design, set designing, 
costume. Well, not really costume. I was terrible at costumes. And directing, acting, uh, running the light board. And so it was just this all-around uh, background in theater that has, for what I do now, running Cardinal, has served me extraordinarily well to have to have that background of knowledge. Matt Ellison was a great school. It's about 1,700 students. It's ranked number one in Canada as, a, as an undergraduate uh a liberal arts college has put out more Rhodes Scholars than any other any other institution in North America, from this little school. Um, so it's it's a great it was a great education. And then you went on to get your MFA in directing. Yeah, I did my masters at the University of Alberta, which uh, strangely enough, at Edmonton has the best acting, directing, and design program in the country. In this place that was minus forty degrees for months at a time uh, in Canada. But that that was also a terrific, terrific program. I got to direct five full productions over two years. What was the initial turning point that focused you away from acting into directing? Again, it was a light bulb moment. Um, when I came out of school, I was directing and acting sort of both at, uh, at the same level or same, same amount. And um, I was cast in a production of Christmas Carol and I was to- on a tour and – one day we came off stage and Mrs. Fezziwig, who was a very large woman, she was about 6'2", grabbed me and she, she was a wonderful woman and she threw me against the wall and she said, for the last three weeks in the dance scene, you've been mouthing my words and you've been watching me. Stop it. And I said, you know what? She's absolutely right. I don't – I've stopped acting. I'm not there anymore. I'm watching everything. And, and I just – and I think I acted like once more after that. I just I realized I couldn't do it. I, I just I can no longer get myself to that place that actors need to get to on stage, where you're inside it. I, I was just watching myself all the time and became so self-conscious. Um, I just can't do it anymore. Can you elaborate on some of your MFA directing projects? Yeah, I was fortunate to direct five shows in uh, in my MFA, and um, I think the, I, I was extraordinarily lucky in that the theater program built a theater while I was there. And the way, just through the sheer luck of timing, I opened the space with my thesis production. So I did a production of George Walker's Nothing Sacred, which is an adaptation of Turgenev's Fathers and Sons. And basically the spigot was open. (laughs) They wanted this to be they're coming out. And so I had, you know, a multi, multi thousand dollar costume budget for this show and huge sets and huge lights. And I had a very interesting time in my MFA because, you know, I think going to grad school is about tearing you apart. And and they really did. They tore me apart. I, by the time I did my third or fourth production, I was like, I don't even know if I know how to step like one foot in front of the other, uh, you know, to walk to the stage, let alone help an actor. But it sort of all came together on my thesis production. And I came out of my MFA going, not that I've learned, but I suddenly feel like I know what questions to ask. I, I feel like I came out the other end of it a much better person ready to direct, not yet a director, if that makes any sense. A lot of people think that directing is a lonely job. What do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a very lonely job. <laughs> Why is that? I mean, I mean, there's ultimately you're responsible, so ultimately everybody's looking to you. Ultimately, when things fall apart, nobody's your friend. You're, you're holding the bag. But I think that really it's because in order to do your job, you need to be friends with people but only at a certain level. There's only been a few actors in my life that I've been able to cross the line to really being personal with them and being close with them and, and, and being open with what I know and don't know. And Most actors, you can't do that. Most actors want you to know what you know and be clear with them and not – 
cross a line where where it's anything more than than just a, a, a an actor director relationship. It's just it's just a job in which you have to be reserved and removed in some kind of way, in order to succeed. At least I think so. What kind of training does a director need to have? Well, I don't think I'd go out and you know I'd be the first person to say that that directors need a little bit of everything. It's a very interesting job. It fits me very well. I like having a broad sweep of knowledge. I don't enjoy spending months and years on an in-depth topic. I much prefer being a kind of gadfly of this and that and this and that and, and sort of grabbing and, and piecing all over the place. So I would say that you know, to start, you should have a degree in English or history or some sort of liberal arts. That My degree is actually in English. Um, I think that you should have some background in music. You should have some background in dance. You should have some background in technical knowledge. You just have to, you just have, to have a basic sense of what a theatrical production is on all its levels and you should have some basic sense that when you pick up a script and read it and it's talking about some piece in history, some place, some person, if you don't particularly know, you have to know how to know. Um, so you have to you have to be inquisitive, you have to be curious, and you have to just keep reading uh, everything you can. So after you'd graduated with your MFA, how did you set about getting work as a director? It was the loneliest twelve months <laughs> of all my lonely times. Basically, what I wrote uh, a director that I, that three or four people had recommended to me. I had never met in Canada a fellow named Peter Hinton, and I said. Uh, you're doing a production of The Beggar's Opera out in the middle of nowhere in Vancouver, in British Columbia. Uh, I will pay for the ticket to fly out there and I will be your assistant director. And I did. I, I flew out there. He said, well, sure, come on. Can you do this research for me and bring it out? And I, I flew out and I spent two months living in a tent in a in, with no running water in the, this caravan. It's called the Caravan Farm Theater. They do it under a big tent with Clydesdales. And uh, – we had a, we hit it off, Peter and I, and he invited me to be his associate artistic director in Vancouver, and that's where I learned everything. That's I had come out of my MFA ready to ask questions, and Peter was there to answer them. Literally, he he's the smartest person I've ever met in the theater. He currently runs the National Arts Center in Canada, the, the, the English Canadian theater part of it. I mean, he's just a very uh, wonderful man, and uh, he he was a new play development company, and working on new plays taught me everything I know about about theater you know, about play construction, play, uh, how to read a play and how to think about staging a play. Elaborate on that a little bit because I'm sure our listeners would be interested to know how do you start work on a new play if you've got you know, no reference point? Most of my life has been, in the theater has been spent doing new work, uh, both in, from this job in Canada and then when I went to New York. Almost everything I did in New York was new play development, working with playwrights. I was the resident director at New Dramatists in New York for two years, which meant I had you know, 30 playwrights would come to me often, frequently, throwing, and some pretty significant playwrights. And my job was to read their scripts and give them feedback or do a reading, direct actors in a, in a reading or workshop environment. I think the thing that, that you're trying to do when you're reading a new script is you're trying to identify what it is that the playwright is trying to accomplish. And I mean that both in terms of what story are they trying to tell, the subject matter, but also the structure, like what, what is their voice? Or the, the other way to think about what's their vision and what's their voice? And I always felt my job when I was working on a new play and when I'm still working on new plays is to protect the play and assist the playwright in getting that, that play to the place that they want it to be 
um, and and in their voice in the way that they want to tell it. So it's it's strange. There's no there's no rules. I read the play, I read the play, and I read the play. I try to read it three or four times before I talk back to the playwright, and I just start asking questions. I just circle something. I go. I don't quite understand this. I don't understand why the character makes this leap here, or I don't understand this moment. You know, say if we're working on Hamlet, right? I, I, a great example would be. I don't, you know, if I was reading it for the first time, I might say, can you explain to me why that the monologues fall where they fall? Like, what are you, what, what's happening here so that out of this moment uh, where Claudius and, and uh, Polonius are together, why is Hamlet speaking to uh, the, the greatest monologue? Are they hearing it? Or are they not hearing it? Like, just asking simple questions that, because I think the playwright might say, this is why they're doing it, and they may be then able to clarify it in the text. They may be able to say, no, I want that to be ambiguous. I want the director, actors to be able to figure that out each time. It'll be something different. Or they may say, screw off. That's a stupid question. Let's get going. All of those are legit answers to me from a, from a playwright. But that's all I'm trying to do is get the playwright to articulate what it is they're trying to accomplish so that uh, they can do something about it. And that's something maybe huge. They may completely rewrite the script from a simple question. Uh, I remember I was working on uh, – I was an associate director with David Edgar uh, the British playwright who wrote Pentecost and we were working on Continental Divide and I remember we were working on a play and I asked him a question. I said, this is like the secondary character. I said, what, is, what does that character actually want? And it was like the light bulb went over his head. It's like the simplest question you can ask in theater. And he went, I haven't put it in there. And he went back in and he rewrote huge scenes based on this very simple question. Um, but I've also asked questions that I thought were enormously profound and a playwright looked at me like I had four heads <laughs> you know, and went, you and I shouldn't work together. There's no rules. It's, I mean, you know, it is an art. <laughs> sure, and it's a very exhausting occupation. Are there any aspects of the job that you, you find irksome or bothersome? I think the hardest thing about directing, beyond the, the volume of time that it takes to get up a play, is that you're always putting together a new team. Like on every project, it's a new team. And so you're always trying to figure out how to communicate with these new people, whether they're actors or designers or the folks backstage. And it's very difficult to constantly be in a state of, am I communicating this clearly? So for me, it's it's relationships with people because you need to have a certain sense of authority. You can't ever be off. You have to be on all the time. You have to be in a position where you're they're looking to you for leadership and you've got to always be there for them and yet at the same time you've got to be driving them. And, and just the, all that balance stuff of human interaction is, is, is tricky. And, and there may be directors who find that easy. It may be just my personality. I don't know. But it's definitely uh, for me one of the trickiest, the trickiest things. Well, it's time for our first music selection. Randy, what have you brought with you? The first selection uh, I've brought is um, Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan. I'm a very big Bob Dylan fan. As everybody who works in my office knows, uh, I have all the albums and I've, I've traveled the country following him and, and I have many, many, many bootlegs. Um, I, I had the experience of going to college uh, from a small town in Canada and I very distinctly remember the first week of college. I heard three things that I'd really never heard before. Number first dance I went to, I heard Bob Marley. This is 1984. Bob Marley's been around for a while. I had never heard reggae. I heard Moondance by um, Van Morrison, and I heard Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. And those three things just changed my world <laughs> in a big way. Uh, and Dylan has become a, a, an obsession for me. I, I just 
a very big fan of the man. And this song in particular, uh, I had a girlfriend in college for four years, and uh, when when it was over and we decided to split up and and uh, go our separate ways, I I had a hard time with it for a while and I actually wrote a play about it and this was the sort of centerpiece of the play was actually quoting through this this particular song Tangled Up in Blue Early one morning the sun was shining I was laying in bed Wondering if she'd changed it all if her hair was still red her folks, they said our lives together sure was gonna be rough. They never did like mama's homemade dress. Papa's banquet wasn't big enough. And I was standing on the side of the road, rain falling on my shoes. Heading out for the East Coast, Lord knows I paid some dues. Getting through, tangled up in blue. She was married when we first met her, soon to be divorced. I helped her out of a jam, I guess, but I you're listening to Profiles, and our guest this evening is Randy White, Artistic Director of the Cardinal Stage Company. I'm Murray McGibbon. Randy, you've directed at a number of American universities. Any memorable productions or experiences that you could share with us, our listeners? I've had uh, a number of great experiences. Uh, into the Woods was was a huge one, which I got to do with the Yale Dramatic Association, um, and we we completely reimagined the play and and retold the story, uh, set in a Diane Arbus inspired nineteen sixties house in which the four members of the family were um, were reimagined as a as a, a very sad group of of people living sad lives, imagining the story of Into the Woods. Uh, and that was a that was a wonderful experience uh, getting to work at Yale, and then doing Sweeney Todd at Penn in the Hal Prince Theater was a was a remarkable experience. Uh, one of the great experiences uh, I've had a long t- I had a long term relationship with Fordham University in New York. I directed three or four times there. Doing the last show I did was a big production of The Government Inspector, uh, the Gogo play, and and that to me was was you know as a director i think you you know you're sometimes when you're working on a text and you 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 think it's really good and you get into rehearsal and you go this is as good as it gets that script i think is just one of those rock solid pieces of theater and then directing here um in the bacchae uh and getting to work with Colin Teven that we brought over from from london um and doing you know what i consider to be one of the th- one of the great pieces of, of, of dramatic literature. Um, so I've been very fortunate to work across the country, and uh, I love working with with students when they are working at a certain level and committed and, and, and uh, going for it. What do you find different between a professional actor and a student actor? There's three levels of actors. There's professional actors, there's amateur actors, and then there's student actors. And, and the professional actor brings to the table exactly like a plumber who's working they bring their tools to the table. They just they know what tools to bring, and they know when to bring them out. And they are a partner with you in a different kind of way. They lead you often. The great professional actors that I've worked with. The amateur actor is working on a level of of goodwill and good spirit with some technical abilities often gained from experience, but not necessarily always sure about how and when and where to 
pull it out, and they require a, perhaps a bit more guidance. Um, and by and I do mean by amateur and professional. I simply mean a professional is working and being paid and constantly doing it. And an amateur is is someone who's got other lives going on and and uh, who acts. Um, because they love it. And, and I can say as someone who's worked with it and someone who goes to see a lot of theater that some of the great performances and some of the great experiences I've had in the theater have been with amateur troops because they do bring something that is very unique and different. A student, you, you have a, le- a level of responsibility that's different, very different than those other two. Um, often they bring a level of enthusiasm. And one of the things I've noticed with students is you'll start a rehearsal process and they'll be like bouncing off the walls with excitement. And two weeks in, they're like, they, they can't, they can't put a foot in front of them in front of the other because they're exhausted. They don't feel like they know what they're doing. They don't know how to go to a place of construction. They don't know how to piece it together. They want to do it holistically. And they have all this ex- extreme enthusiasm in, in the beginning. And then when, if anything isn't working, they, they collapse on you really, really quickly and really badly. And so you have to be aware of that, prepared for that, and, and talk to them about that. Um, but boy, when you get a student who's, who's able to make that break and, and make the jump and, and get you to a place where they're, they're engaged and they're involved in their performance uh, boy, is it a beautiful thing because they're just so in, invested in it, you know. Any experiences that haven't been so beautiful? In theater? Mm. Oh, God, yes. You know, I think there's a way in which you start a process and somewhere about two or three weeks in, as you move into tech, you're like, I think this is going this way. I hope it goes this way. And you're never – it's always an act of faith because you never know what's going to – you never know what's going to drop. Uh, and work for you. I mean, there's been projects where you know this is working, and there's projects where you know I'm in real trouble. But for the most part, you're sort of always in this place of I think this is going to work. I hope this is going to work. I think I need to push it this way. And sometimes, you know, stuff that you're two, three days out from opening, and you're like, God, I hope this pulls together. And you do a run through, and you're like, Yes, there's the show. Yes, there it is. And then there's other times where you're like, Why won't it click? Why? I don't understand. It's the exact same thing I did on the last show, and this one just won't click. Um, and I was involved with a project recently where it just it just wouldn't spin. It just wouldn't lift off the stage. Those are enormously frustrating, and I, I've, I've gotten to a place in my life where I just sort of I have to walk away from them because I, I would kill myself in my 20s and 30s as a director. Like I wouldn't leave it alone. But sometimes it just doesn't work. A director is responsible for absolutely everything you see on the stage. Have you had experiences when you've cast an actor – and once you get into rehearsal, you think, oops, I think I've made a terrible mistake here. I mean, ultimately, I think a director is responsible, A, for casting. <laughs> you know, your job is to get the best out of everybody. That's your job, whether it's your designer, your actor, whatever. Now, I've worked I've, – I've, I've assisted some directors and some pretty big directors and I've watched them walk away from an actor and go, I don't care about you. You can't do it. I'm not going to worry about it. I've watched them walk away from a production and go, this production doesn't work. It's not my fault. It's the producer's fault. It's the actor's fault, whatever. Uh, I've never been able to do that, um, mostly because I'm not in a position where if I walk away, my career will <laughs> keep going. Um, but I, I think that ultimately the director is responsible. But you know, a great production doesn't happen without good actors and a good director and a good team. Like it, it, it all has to come together. A director can hide a lot of sins, but they're they, they're hiding. They're, it's it's not truly lifting without actors who can can do it. You need the horses to run the race, um, and then you need the trainer. My metaphor is terrible. <laughs> <laughs>
Some people believe that uh, you know, if the production's a great success, it's because the actors were wonderful. Yeah. And if the production's a flop, it's because the director was terrible. What's your take on that? I agree with that completely. <laughs> I agree with that completely. I think your job as a director – John Jory, who ran Actors Theatre of Louisville for many years, wrote an essay. And I, I remember when I first moved to New York and I was still sort of figuring out who I was going to be as a director and I read this essay in American Theatre magazine. And it was uh, just basically excoriating the the, the – condition of American directing and saying that directors uh, were being turned out of schools as kind of mini auteurs and that, you know, in his experience, there was only like four or five directors across the entire country that he knew he could turn to and say, I want you to come in and direct this piece. He didn't have to tell them what piece. He didn't have to show them what piece. They just directed shows to what the show wanted to be. That was their skill set. And that's what I feel like my directing style is. I'm not an auteur director. I don't tear everything apart, make it look like a Randy show. Obviously, there are certain things that you will notice if you come see enough of my shows that I that I like. I like you know mask forward acting. I like text to be clear and strong and out there. I want actors to be pursuing all the time. There's, there's certain things I do, but I try to do it within the frame of what it is the play wants to be, not what I think it wants to be. So if you see a, a small, violent production in the Waldron Fire Bay, it's going to be different than a big musical on the Buskirk stage, and, and that's what I think my job is. But ultimately, within w- the reason I say all that is because I think that a director should disappear Basically, I mean, a good show, you shouldn't be thinking about the director for the most part. Now, there's occasionally a show where it's kind of fun to watch a director, you know, do their stuff. But for the most part, I think a director is not present. He should be filtering through his all his his people. You had the experience of working on The Lion King in New York. That must have been a decided highlight of your career. It was It was a remarkable experience. The thing that I loved about the show, my, my job on the show was to watch the show and take notes. Um, and so I got to watch it. 75 times maybe. And, uh, but what I loved to do after I got a little bored with watching it uh, was I would, I would sneak up to the booth and watch the show from the stage manager's booth or sneak down into the pit and watch the musicians in the show. The stage management on that show was incredible. I mean it's just it's – a, it's a thing of beauty. I mean they're calling so many cues and they're actually hand operating a whole bunch of things. So it's like watching a piano player while calling a show. The remarkable thing about that show is having seen it that number of times is how – well, it the opening 20 minutes of that show are as good as theater gets. I mean, it really is. And it's also looking... I mean, I got to listen really carefully to the orchestrations and the arrangements and how the sound was working in the space and certain things that Joe Church was doing as the sound, uh, the sound designer that were just so subtle and so gorgeous and how it just controlled the audience's experience. And he, you know, he, uh, some of it was less subtle. I mean, he was able to get the audience out of its feet with certain booms and sounds and, you, you know, people just respond in, in certain ways when they're in big numbers. Um, so it was it was a remarkable experience. Just, it, 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 at some point, it just got to be a very technical experience, like watching how the sound was working, you know, watching how um, a, a certain piece of blocking when it moved three foot three feet downstage as opposed to the actor forgetting to move three feet downstage. The difference that would make in a scene uh, was remarkable. And that was my job, was literally to go, you're supposed to move three feet downstage. After six months, that got a little tiring. Um, and they asked me to come back and actually be the, the, the resident director. Um, they came back to me a year later, and I turned it down because I just I couldn't be the steward of someone else's vision for years at a time. It just It just... Did you get to work with Julie Taymor? Only incidentally. Um, 
she came in and, and directed and I got to sit and watch. Um, she got to um, audition. I got to watch her audition actors and I got to watch her work with some actors. Uh, and the very first day that I showed up for work, my first job <laughs> was to go get uh, Julie's lunch and I screwed it up. What I brought back do? the long, the wrong sandwich. And uh, the producer – this is literally – the producer pulled me aside and goes, you can be fired for this. And I was like, fire me. Seriously. I, I, I got mustard instead of mayo. I'm so sorry. Julie, of course, never said anything. But the producers were like, this is terrible. This is the worst thing that's ever going to happen. She's a force of nature. She is, she is something. I mean she, she wants what she wants and, and she will uh, push to get it. And of course, I've been following the, the, the – uh, the, the travails of, of uh, the show that continues uh, to uh, be built in New York, Spider-Man. So, have, have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Um, my very, very dear friend, Glenn Berger, who uh, he and I have directed uh, – I've directed yeah, seven or eight pieces of his, including uh, Underneath the Lintel, which is, you know, went on – was 15 months off Broadway. It's had like 150 productions around the world. Uh, he did uh, Oh Lovely Glowworm. We did it out in Portland and we did it here. Uh, he's writing the book for, for for it with Julie. He's the book writer. And, of course, she's no longer with the project and he still is. And so um, I'm going to New York and I look forward to having a, a drink with Glenn and catching up. Well, your next musical selection is from another big musical. Can you tell us about that? I think Gypsy is the perfect show. I mean, I just think it's, it's a terrific piece. And um, I chose a piece that I haven't directed. I've directed most of the big musicals, actually, across, along the way. Uh, but Gypsy is one that I haven't, and it's something that's on my radar. Um, I also think that if you're looking at how to write a piece in the second act, it's not quite an 11 o'clock number, but if you want to write a piece that's going to lift your play, that's going to take you to, to the, the, the audience back into that place of just sheer theatrical enjoyment, there just is nothing better. It's... This gotta get a gimmick is is the top of the form. You can pull all the stops out till they call the cops out. Grind your behind to your band. You're listening to Profiles, and our guest today is Randy White, Artistic Director of the Cardinal Stage Company. I'm Murray McGibbon. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Randy, what brought you to the bright lights of Bloomington from Broadway? I was in Vancouver in 96, 95, 96 as the associate artistic director and I moved to New York to follow uh, my then partner, 
who was going to Columbia University uh, doing her PhD in in uh, Shakespeare English, and um, when she graduated in 2002, she went out on the market and she uh, was offered a job in Bloomington. And so we came here and we looked around, and uh, there were many wonderful things in Bloomington. And the theater had just been built in the theater department, so those those were brand new and. Uh, the Busker Chumley had just been renovated. So it seemed like a town that was kind of in an artistic renaissance. And uh, so she decided to come here. I stayed in New York for about two years, two, three years. And then I uh, ended up doing the Buckeye. And actually, that was a pretty formative experience because I finally got to settle here for six or seven weeks at a time. And uh, at that time, because I was doing the Buckeye, I got into the theater community a little bit and got to start talking to people at um, – uh, detour theater and some of the downtown theater stuff that was going on. And I just remember thinking clearly that I need to be here and there's such a, a storied history of doing theater in Bloomington that there might be a way that I could bring a different business model to what had come before. And that's that's basically what I was thinking was that is there a way to take all of the stuff that had been done on a kind of amateur level and, and again, I don't mean that qualitatively. I just mean that in terms of people doing things that they love um, and not getting paid for it and turn that into a business model in which people would be paid for what they're doing and could we build a regional theater model. And then we did Our Town, the first show we did, which was a, a pretty big success. And I thought, OK, well, let's keep going and keep trying. And, and then four years later, here we are. Well, what a remarkable achievement. What were some of the uh, obstacles in your path when you started the company? I mean, there were, there were some small obstacles, you know, people, what are you doing here from New York and that that kind of thing. And I'm actually not from New York. I just lived in New York for a while. I think the biggest obstacle to doing theater in Bloomington um, in the way that we're trying to do it is just the lack of depth of experienced people. And I, and I mean that like set painters. Like, there's just not a lot of set painters in town If you and they're all at the university. And so when you can – convince them that this project is worth their time, they will come over and do it. Same with lighting designers and set designers. There's just not a great, you know, bench of people in and actors. There's there's only so many actors in town who have experience, a great deal of experience, who are able to get up and, you know, perform a, a, a big role on the Buskirk stage that requires technical chops and, and experience. So I say that's the hardest thing is just that in doing shows over and over again is continuing to find people to refresh the pool of, of folks that you're using and, and also not wearing people out. If you do a cardinal show, I mean, I've had people who've done three, four, five cardinal shows with us and they're beat. I mean, it's exhausting, especially if you have another life. And the lead up to production is just, it's onerous. I mean, we, we tech hours and hours and hours and we just keep going. So that's, I think, just getting the people that can do it um, over and over again. And how do you remain viable financially? <laughs> We've been very fortunate... I, I would say that um, we've grown from you know a first production where I sort of put twenty thousand on my credit card to being you know close to a six hundred thousand dollar organization over over several years, which is a pretty substantial level of growth. But we've sort of reached a point now that I think we are sort of at a, at a sort of plateau for, for, in terms of easy growth. Like we got all the folks who want to see theater are coming to, to Cardinal shows as they're coming to. You know, IU shows and they're coming to BPP shows. We've got those folks coming to our shows um, and we've got to do a better job of, of servicing them and stewardship and all that kind of stuff. But 
Uh, we've got them. We've got donors who are committed on because they love theater. How we get beyond that in a town of this size is where we're at right now. And and a lot of what the board is focused on and what the staff is focused on is where is our growth going to come in terms of audience? Is it going to be working in Bloomington white collar? Is it folks who go to the mall but don't see downtown arts as part of their world? Is it the surrounding communities? Is it the university? Those sort of things. So we're looking. We're actually looking at bringing in a marketing director. Uh, in the near near future, and the same thing on the on the fundraising front. So, I, I think that the, the 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 money is always tough. People are underpaid, drastically underpaid. My staff works so many hours for what is minimum wage or below minimum wage when you add it all up. Actors work for less than they should. I mean, everybody's working for less than they should, and it's only because. For whatever reason, doing theater attracts people. People love to do theater. If, you, if you've been bitten by the bug, it's, it's something you can't ever walk away from. And so we take advantage of it. I mean, that's just the honest truth. We don't pay at the level we should, and, and we're trying to build. Now, you're the artistic director, and you're also a director of, for the company. What is the difference between an artistic director and a theater director? Well, a theater director directs the production. You're, you're the person who, who, for lack of a better word, has the concept for what you're going, going to do with the show. You work with the designers to come up with what the set's going to be, what the costume's going to be, what the sound and lights are going to be. And then you bring that into the rehearsal room with actors and you put it all together and you say, you know, it's everything from I think this is what this means to cross here and sit here um, working with the actors and then ultimately pulling it all together in the, in the final week. Uh, an artistic director is setting the artistic vision for the company. So it's going, who and what? What is the, what is the mission of this company? Uh, what is the programming going to be in this company? And working closely with the board of directors to liaison between the staff and and the board in terms of mission fundraising and other board activities. I also function as the executive director, which means I oversee the business side as well. Usually in a theater, there's an artistic director and an executive director. Sometimes those two are combined, and, and in this case, they are, mostly because we can't afford an executive director at this point. I have uh, three other full-time staff, and to have another chief wouldn't be that useful. We need folks who are doing things. Um, so the, the job of artistic director is sort of overseeing the entire company. What would you say your artistic mission is for the company? Our, our mission has been pretty simple up to now. It has been we are trying to establish Cardinal as a professional regional theater um, along the lines of IRT or Actors Theater of Louisville. Uh, it's changing, consciously changing. We're actually sitting down with a planning committee to come up with a new mission because I think that that mission is not deep enough. It doesn't have enough um, meaning to it uh, as, as a mission statement. What I can say about what I think we're trying to do is I think that we are um, – trying to, to uh, produce plays that appeal to a wide range of audiences from those people who want to see more uh, challenging material to those who are more comfortable with something that they know, like A Sound of Music or something like that. I think that we have uh, an education mandate that is um, expanding and has been very successful uh, and is expanding. And we also have a mandate for what we call community access. And uh, I'm a very big fan of bringing people to the theater who can't otherwise afford to come. And so, for for example, this year we will have 1,500 people come to Cardinal who are not paying for a ticket because we've gone out and fundraised that money to pay for their tickets. Well, that's just wonderful. Yeah, so that's that's been a big a big part of what we do. They say there's no biz like showbiz. Um, how's the current economy affected you, if at all? You know, I think that. Uh, 
we've been we've been fortunate up until this year in that the economy doesn't seem to have made a, a major difference. It's it feels to me it's strange. It felt you know the last couple of months in Bloomington have felt tighter than than the previous two years. It feels like Bloomington was a little behind the the curve of of the the experience of the of the recession. Um, I'm hoping that things start to be look feel like they're looking looking up right now in terms of where we're at uh, financially. Just just our relationship with people anyway. I can I can only speak anecdotally. Can you talk about any of your favorite productions that you've either directed or produced for Cardinal? Yeah, I, I have a couple that are very special. Uh, Our town was was an enormous land for me in this town. Um, it, it was one of those shows, and I just remember watching the final night of that show and just going, man, this is as good as it gets. Just being involved in this production is as good as it gets. I, I love it. I love doing the Havel piece. We did the unveiling. Frog and Toad was a was a remarkable experience. Just the audience's experience of that show and watching the audience. I, you know, I've said this before, but watching, you know, two five-year-olds fall out of their chair laughing on the left of me and turning to the right and watching David Higgins, the opera designer, fall out of his chair to the right of me. And I go, okay, this show's working. <laughs> on on every level, this show is working. And then after that, you know, there's been, there's been a number of pieces. I think that uh, if you give a mouse a cookie, <laughs> which was our first Cardinal for Kids show, I, I love watching kids watch shows. I just, when they get into it, there's nothing like it. They're just such a pure id in the theater, you know. Um, so those have been really important plays. And what about your long-term plans for the company? We've just purchased a building. That building is currently serving our office and rehearsal, storage and construction needs. Uh, it doesn't yet do performance. So that's that's sort of where I'd say the company is, is figuring out right now is what do we want our space to be? Do we want to build on that space? Can we build on that space? What is our fundraising capacity to build on that space? Um, my goal is to build this company over the next three to five years into a uh, fully professional regional theater in which people are being remunerated at the level commensurate with their work. Um, and my hope is that we will be there in somewhere five, five-ish years out uh, to be a company in which we are a small professional equity company. In a nutshell, how would you define theater? What is theater for Randy Watt? I think that theater for me is a desperate and almost futile search for the moment in which the electrons in the room all line up and an audience and an actor or actors are inside the same thing. And it it rarely happens. You do it all the time, but there's a moment in theater where everything just clicks and everybody's engaged in the same predicament of whatever is happening on stage. The actors are fully immersed in it. The audience is fully engaged with it. The actors are communicating with each other so intensely and connecting with the audience. And that's the thing. One of the things that I have a huge, I'll just say this, I have a huge issue with most acting training in our country because it's all about what's going on between actors. And I think that theater is what's going on between actors only and what's going on between an actor and an audience. And so many young actors that I work with coming out of school have no notion of what an audience is. They don't care about it. And I'm like, what are you doing? How can you turn your head this way? How can you not understand this line needs to go this way in order for that thing that I'm pursuing to happen? It will never happen between two actors on stage. It never happens. You put two scene study students in a room with no other people watching, that scene will never be anything. 
It's only when those other people are watching that theater happens. Uh, and that's what I'm desperately pursuing all the time and rarely succeeding. <laughs> it sounds like you've been very successful. You strike me as being very passionate and enthusiastic. Where do you get your inspiration from? I don't know why I love doing theater. I just – I don't know why. I've, I've thought about leaving it on multiple occasions when my bank account has been empty, uh, when it has been feeling like it's, it's killing me. Um, and I just – I can't walk away from it. There's just something about – and you, you bang your head and you, you, you feel just brought down a lot of times. But then you get those moments. There's just those moments where something happens in the room again and some actor does something that just lifts it. And you're just like, this is why I do it. It's so wonderful. And you want to just jump up and down and, and shout it. It's just so wonderful when you see that moment happen. And that to me just – that just inspires me. So I guess to answer your question clearly – when it's all said and done, it's actors. It, it really is. This, this, this business, we're all in service of the actor and the actor that does it, that lifts it, that makes it, that communicates with the audience, that thing that you're trying to communicate, something about the human condition. It's gorgeous. And, and I guess the other thing I'd say is there's something about being in theater that allows you to experience, to pursue, talk about, explore some of the things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to in polite society. And I like that. <laughs> Randy, what role does theater play in a civilized society? You know, when I was younger, I remember having lots of thoughts about this and arguing in my MFA program with my MFA partner. I remember a distinct conversation about whether theater matters or not and you know whether you can change the world. I've come to believe that what theater does is, is it just gathers people together um, and as it's always done. It's gathered people together into one place to share common stories. It's just a larger version of everybody in their tent, come on out around the campfire, and we're going to tell a story. And somehow, for some reason, that story that we tell um, is going to do one of a couple of things. It's either going to make us laugh at our foibles, we're either going to call it comedy, and we're going to exaggerate what we do to laugh at it, and, and there's some release in that. Or the second thing it's going to do is it's going to bring us to our place of pain, and we're going to share a story of tragedy. Uh, and that tragedy is somehow – and I don't know. I don't have a clear sense as to whether it's catharsis or something like that. But what I do know is that it's necessary to experience it for whatever reason. And if you're not experiencing it, I don't think you're living a full life and, and, and I don't think you're living an examined life and I don't think you're, you're being clear about who and what you are. And, and you've got to be finding it somewhere else because there's no way you can go through this world and all its myriad uh, just – awfulnesses that we go through every day, whether it's the pain that comes with getting older and getting out of bed or, the, you know, the, 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 as Moliere understood clearly, um, or, or it's the, uh, the people who do you wrong on your way to work or the fellow person in the office next door who gets on your nerve, whatever it is, or the, the death of a parent or all of that stuff. All of this stuff, you have to find a way to work through it. And there's something about coming together to talk about it, to, to watch it, to experience it that has some uh, that, that means something to the larger social construct of what we call our community. Tell us about your last musical selection. My last musical selection is very personal. Um, I'm a Canadian, and so Glenn Gould was sort of a, a way in which I came into classical music and listening to uh, to his his material. There was also a huge uh, movement to try to capture Glenn Gould on stage when I was coming of age as a, as a theater person. So there was a number of Glenn Gould plays going on. And uh, I remember listening to both the um, 1955 
Goldberg Variations recording and the 1981 Goldberg recording, uh, which were very different pieces that he recorded at two different times in his life and sort of obsessing about what it means to be young and what it means to be old and how these things these things changed him. But what really has made it personal is my son, who's three and a half, when he goes to bed on his on the iPod, uh, we he, he asked for one of two pieces. He asked for A Year with Frog and Toad uh, or he asked for Bach. For some reason, he has fallen in love with the Goldberg variations. And so every night when I start, I click it. And by the time I get out of the room, the first piece is gone. And I always walk out of the room to variation 1A. And so that piece of music is is just so intimately connected with how I experience my uh, joys and my frustrations with my three-and-a-half-year-old son. Well, this will be our last music selection and bring us to the conclusion of this interview. Our guest today was Randy White, Artistic Director of the Cardinal Stage Company. Randy, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening and for sharing your thoughts and ideas about your world of theatre. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm Murray McGibbon, and thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.